Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina is the best way to keep on top of the latest news from China in just a few minutes a day with our free daily email newsletter, our handy smartphone app, and of course at our website, subchina.com. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. I'm Kaiser Guo, and I am in New York today, where I am joined by the man with the golden corn, Mr. Jin Yumi, also known as Jeremy Goldcorn. Please, meet our gentle listeners, Jeremy. Hello, dear listeners. And Kaiser, when are you going to run out of these uh, cheesy things? <laughs> I'm not going to. I have an inexhaustible supply. <laughs> so today we are honored and delighted to have as our guest Stephen Roach, an economist who's been a keen and very canny observer of China's remarkable development for many years now. Stephen is senior fellow at Yale University's Jackson Institute for Global Affairs and a senior lecturer at Yale School of Management. He was formerly chairman of Morgan Stanley Asia and chief economist for Morgan Stanley. He's the author of the excellent book Unbalanced, The Codependency of America and China, which was published in 2014. It's a fantastic read, and we'll be talking about many of the ideas and insights it offers, as well as giving a bit of an update and looking at how things have played out since it was published. Stephen Roach, welcome to Seneca. Thank you, Kaiser. Great to be here with you and Jeremy. Stephen, welcome. Let's jump right in and talk about Unbalanced. Your book is essentially an exploration of what you call the growth trap of codependency, in which, at least in this case, the ultimate consumer, the United States, meets the ultimate producer, China, and how they enable one another in ultimately unsustainable models of growth. In, in what ways does this differ from the Chimerica idea that the historian Niall Ferguson advanced? Well, Chimerica, a view that Niall endorsed, but then like many of the things he endorsed, he, he uh, took the other <laughs> side of it as well. You know, it sort of talks about the seamless integration of uh, of two powers uh, in the realm of um, economic engagement, and um, you know, noting that they both um, played important roles uh, in supporting an increasingly integrated global economy. And you know, my view is that the relationship has long been a much more complex interaction. Both systems, both economies, both nations had uh, clear needs in the um, late 1970s for uh, new recipes for economic growth. And the ultimate uh, consumer, the United States, uh, really needed to figure out a, a new way to satisfy consumers who were increasingly strapped of income with cheap goods. And China, the ultimate producer, whose economy was um, in, in pretty desperate shape in the late 1970s, needed to figure out a new way to grow, and uh, exporting to needy American consumers uh, fit its recipe as well. And so there was a real need that brought them together, and that need then became addictive 
hence the, the codependent uh, diagnosis of the sort of amateur psychologist turned economist that made me want to write this book. So you could think of it as the dark side or the pathological side of Chimerica then? Well, um, codependency is an unhealthy relationship. Uh, and it's true of humans, and it's I think it's true of economies, because ultimately the partners in a codependent relationship lose their sense of self. Their identity gets tied up in the way that they end up satisfying the other. And um, it, it can be a pathology that feeds on itself because, again, the goods provided by the ultimate producer were exactly what the ultimate consumer needed. And the demand provided by the ultimate consumer was exactly, you know, the type of growth that the, the exporter, China, needed. So the growth solution that came out of this codependency became a very addictive uh, aspect of this codependency. You use the, the phrase false prosperity very frequently in your book. So what forms of false prosperity took hold in the U.S., in China, and, and in Europe? Uh, and what makes the prosperity apparently enjoyed in these different geographies actually false? Well, it's my, my sense is, Kaiser, that it's a important outgrowth of the political economy uh, of economic growth. Uh, there's enormous pressure on economic policymakers to deliver fast rates of economic growth. And um, when growth lags, as it does from time to time, or it has for a long time in many of the advanced economies of the developed world, the pressures intensify from the political spectrum to, to generate more growth. And the false prosperity comes about when policymakers take shortcuts, thinking that they can create um, uh, a new and lasting surge of economic growth by making some changes in tax laws or approaches to asset markets, asset bubbles, new financial products, new innovations, believing that they can deliver growth by pulling the levers of markets and policies rather than uh, really drawing on the indigenous sustenance of economic growth that we economists have always felt comes from improved productivity. And you name the country, they all tried it. Uh, you know, the U.S., we thought we could do it, uh, deliver more growth through asset bubbles. Europe thought they could do it by, you know, creating uh, a very flawed uh, currency union. Japan thought it could produce some more growth by this mercantilist export-led policy. And those are shortcuts that ended up being dead ends. Uh, for uh, all of those developed economies. In China's case, it was not only the mercantilist approach of Japan, but also this really investment-led kind of uh, this that, that results in, in overcapacity. Well, I, I, you know, I, I'm not exactly convinced that, that China has gone down the road of false prosperity. There is a risk uh, that China could, could fall victim to that. But, I mean, you take the investment point <laughs> that you just made, uh, the view in the West is that, you know, China's got too much investment relative to the size of its economy. The investment share, depending on how you measure it, runs the 40 to 50 percent of GDP. It's unheard of compared with other modern economies. So, you know, the, in, the indictment goes that China has um, got its economy skewed far too much toward investment, and that's what drives the debt-intensive growth. It's gotten China uh, uh, trapped in a potentially Japanese-like quagmire. Um, you know, it's a great story, and it, and it does resonate with some of the problems that we've seen from time to time in developed economies. But 
you got to just pause and say, wait a second, this is a poor, relatively undeveloped country that coming out of the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution in the late 1970s, basically didn't have much in the way of a productive stock of fixed capital. And so it's had to run a high investment economy to build its infrastructure, to build its uh, manufacturing capacity. And if you scale the stock of its productive capital by the size of its workforce, what economists call the capital labor ratios, which are key to driving long-term productivity and economic growth, China's still really low. And so, you know, you might, um, you know, that's caused me to really uh, be cautious in concluding that, you know, the, the high investment even a high debt economy is a, uh, another example of the false prosperity. That doesn't mean that China hasn't and can't make mistakes in the future, but I think uh, it's premature to draw that conclusion. On a relevant point, I think, um, Stephen, you talk about Washington's uh, long-held penchant for blaming others for problems of its own making. So uh, what do you think are these problems that America is, is blaming on China? Well, you know, I, I, when I wrote this, I was looking back at, at Washington, you know, over the preceding 50 years, Jeremy, and, and never did I dream that we'd get the, we'd elect the biggest blamer in the history right. of um, uh, US, U.S. politics in the uh, face of uh, President Trump, who, who blames literally everyone, including China. And, of course, China was at the top of his list of candidates, yeah. uh, scapegoats during, during the um, – uh, presidential uh, campaign. Why why do we blame others? Is because I think our, our our politicians have a really tough time admitting that there's something fundamentally flawed about our system. That our system gets taken advantage of by others. And again, that's the point that Mr. Trump has made very successfully uh, as a candidate and continually as as a president. As he's shredding up one bad deal after another from, you know, uh, TPP to to NAFTA to maybe the Korean free trade deal to, I think, what I heard um, this morning, he was shredding up U.S. membership in UNESCO. That's right. Uh, so there's, um, it's, it's, it's the arrangements, and, and of course the Iran deal, which is, you know, very topical uh, today. It's the fact that we've cut unfair deals with others, which has disadvantaged our system and, its, and our people. That is, it's a very convenient and easy thing for politicians to grasp onto uh, in, in defending our system as the right uh, and um, appropriate way to conduct uh, our engagement with the rest of the world. And, and what, in fact, is the real heart of the matter? What is the, I mean, I think you, you, you point again and again in your book to shortfall in savings, yes? Well, I actually think the savings issue is uh, a lightning rod issue for both economies. Uh, and I think if I had to write the book again, and every once in a while I get asked to do this, uh, and who knows, I might, I would I would at least have a chapter or more on uh, just this dichotomy between uh, the world's biggest saver, China, uh, and the world's um, uh, most deficient saver, the, the United States. Lacking in saving and wanting to grow in the United States, uh, we must import surplus savings from abroad. It's the only way to square the circle. 
And when you import surplus savings from abroad, by definition, that gives you a massive deficit in your balance of payments or a current account deficit. Stephen, could I interrupt? Um, for our non-economist listeners, and for me, um, how how do you import savings? Well, in in again again the, the current account deficit uh, is funded uh, in large part by capital inflows from abroad. Countries like China, Japan, Germany, all of whom run big surpluses, invest heavily in U.S. Treasury security. So foreign ownership of our debt grows at a, at a very sharp rate. China is now the biggest foreign holder of uh, U.S. Treasury securities. It sort of goes back and forth between China uh, and Japan. But, you know, they both hold close to, if, if you do a full accounting of their holdings, um, somewhere in the one and a quarter to one and a half trillion dollars each. And that, you know, gets to a final piece in the international connection between the United States uh, and its uh, its creditors. When you have this big balance of payments deficit like we do, we, we count on lots of countries, not just China, not just Japan, not just Germany, to fund us. And the biggest piece of that, again, is split sort of equally between China and uh, Japan. But with every current account deficit, especially in the United States, comes a massive trade deficit with many countries. We don't get those treasury bills for nothing. We have to buy their goods and services to um, give them the, the purchasing power uh, to buy those securities. And so last year, 2016, we actually ran trade deficits with 101 countries uh, around the world. And this is, you know, a, a direct outgrowth of our shortfall of saving in the United States. So whether it's, you know, Republican or Democratic administration in Congress, when they complain about America's trade deficits, and, and Trump has been the loudest, but the, the Democrats have complained a lot about it sure. uh, for, for decades as well. They don't want to admit that their policies, especially their fiscal policies, which have squeezed our national savings, are really the main reason why we run these trade deficits. So again, it's an example of blaming others for our own inability to formulate effective pro-saving strategies in the the U.S. policy uh, uh, engagement. In the symmetry in your book, China, of course, has its own over-reliance, its, its own unbalanced character, of course, and that is, you know, over-reliance on exports and and perhaps on, on investment. That's something you're still weighing, but you can put it much better than I do. So describe, if you could, the, the, the pathology at the heart of China's dependence on American growth. You know, wh- where was the, the, the problem going to come from inevitably? Well, it goes back to this 20-year period from, say, 1956 to 1976, Great Leap Forward, Cultural Revolution, where Mao's ideological fervor really wreaked havoc on the performance of the Chinese economy. And by his death in 1976, the economy was nearly in shambles. Sure. Uh, And so there was a very difficult leadership struggle after his death that uh, eventually uh, gave way to uh, Deng Xiaoping, uh, who in December of 1978, uh, at a speech at one of these um, 
party yeah, the third plenary session of the 11th party congress <laughs> way way to go kaiser you, you have done well on my midterm exam yesterday <laughs> um but um you know he 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 really cleared the air and said you know it's it's time to put sort of this ideological battle uh behind us in in china and uh it's important to go forward with a uh, a campaign that is more fact-based and um uh, introduced this credo of reforms and opening up, which was then translated a few years later uh, into a, an enormous uh, focus on uh, in, in investment and building uh, what quickly turned into the world's greatest export machine, the quick antidote to China's economic malaise of um, uh, a, a near failure uh, of the 20 years before Deng Xiaoping uh, was export-led growth hooked conveniently onto the, the demands of voracious income-constrained consumers in, in the United States. Uh, and it worked. The export share of the Chinese economy was about 5% of its GDP in 1979, and it rose sevenfold to 36% in pre-crisis 2007. This was the engine that really drove the 10% growth miracle for uh, nearly 30 years. How does that compare to the, the GDP share of exports for countries like Japan, say, in the 1970s, or Germany in the 60s, 70s, and maybe into the 80s? Um, it's higher, but you know, certainly, um, you know, in, in all of those uh, economies, you know, they, they also were relatively uh, historically high export economies. Right. You know, their, their shares closer... You know, depending upon the economy you pick, somewhere in the low 20% realm. But the big difference for China was the delta going right. from 5 to 36. Six, right. uh, and that gives you a sense of what reforms and opening up were and why they were so powerful in driving growth. And the particularly sharp inflection of the export share came uh, right in the aftermath of China's WTO accession right. in late 2001, China, after over a decade of struggling to get into WTO, uh, was admitted. And I, in the book, write a lot about the role that uh, former Premier uh, Zhu Rongji played in driving that process and the risk he took in going down that road. But the timing turned out to be brilliant because um, it allowed China to ride a big surge in global trade that occurred right in the aftermath of its WTO accession. And so that was sort of the icing on the cake for the reforms in opening up that drove the export-led growth as originally conceived by Deng Xiaoping. Do you think that um, China has been doing more than the United States to correct these imbalances? And if you do, what are the steps that China has been taking uh, to address this problem? Yeah, that's uh, that's that's where the rubber meets the road, Jeremy. Um, you know, if I if I tell you the answer though, then you know your your listeners won't read the book. So, <laughs> but but they I'll, will anyway. We move a lot of units. I'll I'll, I'll dangle a few thoughts there. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that you know that the way I write write about the story is that this codependency. The pathology of codependency created a lot of imbalances uh, in in both systems, whether they're savings imbalances or uh, imbalances in the structures of their economy. And um, 
if you go back a second to sort of the human dimension of psychology, when one of the partners recognizes that, you know, there's a problem uh, and starts to change his behavior uh, and the other one doesn't, then that, that, that's a very destabilizing development you know, within this codependent relationship. There's no guarantee that both partners see their problems at the same time and take the same actions uh, to address them, which gets into this asymmetrical uh, adjustment process that you can then take into the economic realm. I do think that China is much more focused on addressing many of its structural imbalances. Uh, we can argue about the progress that's been made, but it's an active part of the debate in policy circles and has been so for the last 10 years. The United States is de in denial. We don't want to admit that we have problems. We prefer to blame others. And again, maybe I'm going too far with this sort of psychological parallel, but this is a classic manifestation of the scorned partner in a codependent psychological relationship. When, when one starts to get better uh, and the other one is still stuck in the pathology of depending on the other, then uh, he or she, or in this case, the economy lashes out uh, at the other one uh, out of frustration, fear, and ultimately anger. That angry and frustrated partner has a face in my mind and, and a, a particular hairstyle. <laughs> Who might that be? Porn silk like blonde mop atop his head. Uh, so how is China actually ex executing on rebalancing? I mean, it's one thing to talk about growing your services sector. I mean, yeah, in the tertiary portion of, of GDP contribution passed a few years ago, uh, you know, the, the, the primary. And it's... But how is this happening? How does a government decide, okay, we're going to, to rebalance? What, what mechanisms does it use to? Yeah, you don't, you know, you just, you don't take a pill and no. say, you know, all of a sudden wake up and say, you know, we're, we're different. China's had a sort of an, uh, you know, I think a very uh, active discussion of the rebalancing strategy uh, now for 10 years. It started, uh, literally ten and a half years ago, again another question on my midterm yesterday, with um, the four. former former Premier uh, Wen Jiabao speaking about a Chinese economy that was unstable, unbalanced, uncoordinated, and ultimately unsustainable. Um, a criticism that came at a time of great strength that we quickly dubbed the four uns, and uh, that sparked a big debate yeah. over. The wisdom of staying the course of this seemingly inflappable, powerful growth model. And, um, you know, lo and behold, five years later, the government enacted this 12th five year plan that really put some important markers down in the need to reinvent or to rebalance its economic structure from a producer model to more of a consumer model. And you know, deciphering the um, sort of the building blocks contained in the 12th five-year plan, my own analysis said that there were three, three things that they needed to focus on to do it. More jobs, and this was a sort of uh, something that they drew heavily on the development of the job-intensive services sector. Higher real wages, and there the the lever was uh, rural-urban uh, migration, with urban workers getting uh, incomes about three times those in the countryside. But the third piece was convincing workers who had more jobs and more wages to spend 
on discretionary consumption. And um, that's proved to be more difficult because the missing piece there, by my analysis, is the lack of a solid social safety net, the retirement and health care programs that presumably give workers confidence to deal with um, life cycle aging uh, and, and, and health issues. And for a, a society like China, where the, the demography has been distorted by the one-child family p- planning policy, this has proved to be a really difficult aspect of the rebalancing for China. The 13th five-year plan, which is now in effect, attempts to deal more effectively with that. But, you know, I, I would say right now that China's progress on rebalancing is partial at best. Uh, they have made some very important steps in the right direction, but there's still a lot of uh, uh, missing pieces that need to be filled in. Isn't some of it just a, a natural result of people having more money? I'm thinking particularly in terms of consumption. I mean, there was an old saying in the 1990s that you know Beijingers used to say they could split a, a one-fun coin uh, into two uh, because they knew how to save money so much and they were so good at avoiding spending. Whereas some of the younger Chinese people I know, some of my younger Chinese friends, seem to be as profligate in their spending habits <laughs> as their American peers. Yeah, I know. I, I, I get the same impression. I have a lot of a lot of uh, young Chinese students who um, uh, I teach now and I visit them when I go back to China. And, and you know, they certainly, uh, it's, it's hard to distinguish them from their their peer groups uh, in this uh, country. And, and you know, I, I think to, there, there are some generational uh, issues. But ultimately, as an economist, I still break it down into the building blocks of income generation, which come from job creation and real wages, and then the conversion of that labor income into discretionary consumption, which does uh, require you to address these uncertainty issues that uh, are tied back to the lack of a well-funded uh, safety net. So the young millennials seem like they're you know, spending you know, in China like our young millennials, but you know, the, the risk is that... Um, you know, they'll, they'll wake up one day without uh, any assurance uh, of, of, of their life cycle funding needs, and they'll pull back. And that, that would be an unfortunate stalling out of a consumer-led dynamic, which China uh, mm. w- would not want to um, fall into. There's this expression now, literally current, called kunlao, which is you gnaw on the old people. You eat into your parents' savings. You here, uh, it's 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 a it's a pretty awful phenomenon. I've heard that in among urban people in their nineteen in their twenties, actually in China in first tier cities, there's actually a negative savings rate. Uh, I don't know if that's if that's accurate or not. Anyway, you actually cite four, if I, if I can remember correctly, reasons uh, for China's low savings rate. I see that you you really think that this lack of a social safety net is really top. Uh, some of the other ones. I remember were like financial repression and a very, very high corporate savings rate. And nobody's going to argue with those. What about cultural variables? What about the, the sort of Confucian, East Asian propensity to save that? I mean, we're, we're going to talk to Kishore Mabubani in a couple of days. I think maybe it would be one that he might bring up. Uh, do, do, you, do you buy that at all? That there's I, something in the Confucian I, culture that predisposes Chinese toward sort of future orientation? Um Yes and no. I mean, I think, uh, you know, Jeremy was just hinting at that. Um, I think it's a generational issue. I think um, certainly the, the adult, the mature adult 
population of China that you know has gone through um, you know the the better part of the last you know three or four decades with all of the economic, uh, political, and social uncertainty, and have some understanding of their Confucian heritage are predisposed toward a, a more frugal lifestyle. But but the, these yeah <laughs> these young upstarts that that I teach and that you, that you encounter and, and especially uh, as they're afflicted with the sort of millennial near term focus that we find uh, in in this country I think uh, you know this this sort of cultural predilection is is in the process of of changing and it will change uh, in my view if if the income trajectory that underpins the economy can be um, solidified in, in a way that's consistent with continued strong economic growth, economic growth that doesn't get into this false prosperity trap that we spoke of earlier, but economic growth that's really underpinned by um, productivity improvement, which is ultimately a big challenge for all nations in the world. In terms of the social safety net, how would you evaluate the last few years in terms of the government's efforts? Uh, you know, I'm thinking in terms of the healthcare system, particularly the, the healthcare system has got a long way to go. It, it is very far from ideal, but there does seem to be a highly focused effort on the government's part to fix it. Yeah, I, I like the awareness, but, but, you know, it's sort of classic Chinese. I mean, the, the emphasis has been on quantity rather than quality, quality. So they, you know, for urban workers, there's near, you know, universal coverage in the healthcare system, but the, the benefits are just paltry. So it still remains pretty much a cash and pay system. And, and the same is true of Social Security for urban workers. The coverage ratios are up to, you know, maybe 60, 65%. But the benefits are, are, are paltry. So China has sort of got the message that they need to boost their commitment to these safety net programs, but they followed through more in terms of expanding coverage than really deepening the support to these plans through the benefits that um, uh, ultimately uh, will make a, a difference. Stephen, the central event in your book really is, of course, the financial crisis and the Great Recession that followed. Help us to understand how that was perceived from China. I mean, the mainstream media narrative maybe sees China gloating a little bit, worrying about exports falling off, responding really fast with stimulus. But, you know, at a deeper level, how did the leadership understand this crisis? Uh, how How was the, the, the recession uh, seen as a, a profound threat to China's growth model? And what did it stimulate? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, I... I I, I do spend a lot of time talking about the crisis. Uh, I don't know if it's really the central event. I don't know if there is one central event, but it, but it clearly you know is a, is a wake up call, uh, as as I described it uh, in the book, because it uh, it really drew this whole structure of the producer model uh, into sharp uh, question, Kaiser. I mean, go back to Wen Jiabao's sort of prescient warning of the four uns. This was in March of 2007, where he, he raised this criticism. At the time, the world economy was flying, and there was no real threat to the export miracle. So you sort of wonder, like, you know, what is he talking about? And, you know, a year and a half later, the guy looked like the most, you know, brilliant economic forecaster uh, in the history of forecasting. Producers <laughs> need support from demand 
uh, to rationalize the supply. And when the production is aimed at overseas markets, you need that support needs to come from external demand. And so the crisis clobbered uh, the external demand in the biggest consumer uh, of the world, the United States, and left other consumers in a very weakened state. So all of a sudden, the producer model looked completely unsustainable unless the world was going to bounce back immediately in the aftermath of the crisis. There was a lot of hope it might. And, uh, you know, the central bankers of the developed world, especially Ben Bernanke, who uh, I spend a chapter talking about and and, uh, uh, actually drawing some contrast between his approach and Wen Jiabao's approach to economic uh, management, did everything in their power to uh, spark a revival uh, in the United States and, and other advanced economies did similar things known as quantitative easing, but it didn't work. Uh, and so the uh, developed world remained weak. You know, it was not collapsing as it was during the crisis, but this weakened state of external demand growth for China with its producer model, it had to say, wait a second, this is not a recipe that, that we can stick with any longer. And so there's a real urgency to rebalance toward more of an internal demand consumption model in the aftermath of a wrenching crisis. So I did emphasize that a lot in the book, and I've emphasized that for years in my discussions with senior Chinese policymakers. Stephen, you wrote that uh, Americans have been squeezed as workers, but they have benefited as consumers, while the opposite is true for the Chinese. They have benefited as workers, but are squeezed as consumers. The mirror images of codependency could not be sharper. Can you unpack that a little? Did I write that? Yeah, uh, that's pretty good. Uh, yeah. yeah, no, I, I, those are. It's, it's a lovely yeah, piece of symmetry. I mean, the um, American worker has certainly enjoyed and, and learned to shop originally. Walmart's stock with goods made in China and increasingly at Amazon uh, with uh, goods coming from low-cost producers around the world. And, and so there, there have been uh, a lot of benefits that have come our way as consumers. But uh, as workers, you know, in an increasingly globalized production platform, our wages continually get put under pressure by, by these producers um, in in you know, around the world and in, in, in these economies like China and, and, and other economies in East Asia linked to China through through supply chains. And as the world becomes more and more interlinked through these, you know, global supply chains or global value chains, whatever you want to call it, the pressure on uh, high-wage workers in more advanced societies just is, is unrelenting. And again, this gets right to the heart of a current political debate right now. We have a president who wants to make America great again, which is a you know, very ambitious and you know, a worthwhile endeavor to contemplate. But how do we do it and, uh, in, a, in, a, in a globalized world without uh, really drawing into question a lot of the, uh, the rules of engagement that we've become accustomed to? Uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the symmetry on China is that the strong growth on the production side of the economy has required a focus on high saving uh, to support it. And the high saving has, has been a, a very comfortable aspect of um, uh, China's own 
uh, investment funding mechanism. And, and with high saving, very little attention was given to providing support to uh, consumer incomes through you know, more market interest rates and uh, uh, more of a market-determined currency that might work to the advantage uh, of consumers. So to a, to a large extent, uh, a lot of people, myself included, have concluded that there's been uh, an implicit repression of consumer demand that is sort of the mirror image of China's uh, uh, otherwise uh, very powerful producer model. Stephen, you have a really interesting chapter about two men who are really critical to the developments of the economies as they develop. They were, of course, Zhu Hongzhi, who you've mentioned before, and for whom you have considerable admiration, it's pretty clear. And also Alan Greenspan. And it, it's interesting that of the two, the, the communist doesn't come off as the ideologue. In fact, it's it's Greenspan who who comes off as, as you know, ideological. Of course, we all know that he was a disciple of Ayn Rand and, and, and so forth. Let's, let's talk about these two. Uh, you know, Zhu Rongji had his own shortcomings, did he not? Yeah, he was you know, certainly human like, like, like any policymaker and you know, gets steeped in his experiences professionally as well as, uh, in, in his case, uh, being ostracized for about two decades by the powerful political forces of the, um, uh, this, this period of great instability uh, in uh, China. And, and Zhu Rongji was, you know, he had great instincts, a sort of a industry expert, uh, and worked in the central planning parts of uh, regional, eventually the central government. So he, he really understood the way in which the small pieces of the Chinese economy came together. But taking his cue from Deng Xiaoping, that, you know, uh, in, in the late 70s, that you know, the time for ideology is over and it's, it's, it's important to be pragmatic and fact-based in addressing economic problems. He, he was not really making decisions from the standpoint of, of ideology. The irony is that Alan Greenspan also, you know, as a young economist, you know, he had sort of a similar background in some respects. Maybe I'm stretching it. But, you know, his expertise was sort of in doing industry studies. He's a uh, micro guy. Right? He, he was a micro guy, and he didn't really focus on big picture issues. And so when he became chairman of the Fed in 1987, and, you know, it was maybe two months later that the stock market crashed, he, he had to sort of fly by his coattails in sort of developing a macro strategy to address these big risks that were emerging in in the US and so you know they both had this micro these micro foundations and what guided greenspan's macro view was his sort of laissez faire uh, Ayn Rand objectivist ideology and yet what was missing in 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 Jurangi in part because of his loyalty to the Deng Xiaoping credo was running Chinese economic policy from an ideological perspective. So it's an, a really interesting contrast between these Absolutely, two, yeah. two uh, leaders. You mentioned in your book the American horror of planning, of, of long-term strategy uh, in the Chinese way. Has this always been the case, or is this a more recent phenomenon? Well, you know, uh, we, we certainly have, from time to time, uh, flirted with... Um, uh, 
laying out a, a broad framework of engaging with our economic or geopolitical challenges. But the New Deal and Yeah. You know, but those are the exceptions. Right. Uh you know, the Marshall Plan. Sure. Um uh now we've got of course, you know, make America great again. <laughs> Which is just such a detailed strategy for not exactly <laughs> you know, a sort of a, a central planning uh blueprint. But you know, to us, the bastion of the free market system, central planning, you know, personifies, you know, a um, uh, a failed approach of the Soviet Union and, you know, the ideological connection it has to communism or socialism as being, you know, a state-directed allocation of, of resources that that we find really runs against the grain of everything we stand for uh, as a free market system. We, we do go through, you know, an annual budgeting process, although the political quagmire in the U.S. is so treacherous that we, we really can't come to any political agreement on, on budgets. Uh, we do have this sort of exercise in the um, Joint Economic Committee where we bring together policymakers and talk uh, about issues. But we're reluctant to, to really embrace uh, these larger strategic Initiatives, lest they they, they smack of a, a, a too much uh, intervention, and, and, and um, it comes right out of the Soviet-style uh, model, and, and and so we shy away from that. So I see that. I mean, that's part of it. But what about that deep streak of anti-intellectualism, that distrust of experts? That that may seem to me to be something you know a harvest that we're now reaping. Uh, whereas China, you say you know you 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 say China gets it. You say this a couple of times in your book, and. I think that in pieces you've written recently, I think you, you would probably continue to say that, Ch- that China has been pretty enlightened about addressing these fundamental uh, issues in their in their economy. Is China maybe harvesting the the sweeter fruit of decades of essentially technocratic leadership? That's a tough question. Uh, when I first started going to China, maybe twenty twenty five years ago, and engaging in high level discussions. You know, I, I had I had my own expectations of, of what to expect um, sure. in terms of you know what I had read and studied about this sort of um, seemingly you know oppressive uh, intellectual environment, especially you know, coming out of the Cultural Revolution. And, and what shocked me, Kaiser, was the, the spirit of intellectual engagement that I initially encountered and the willingness to really engage one another and engage policymakers in discussing matters of economic strategy, both uh, retrospectively and prospectively. You know, in my former life as the the Wall Street economist, I would have the opportunity to, you know, a couple times a year go in front of the U.S. Congress and testify on matters of strategy. And I was just shocked at the lack of of interest, the lack of willingness uh, by a congressman to really engage in, in, in matters of substance. Truly a disheartening contrast uh, to me. Does that mean that, you know, they're in a better place uh, than us? No, but it, it, it certainly, you know, resonates for an environment in Washington that I think now has become poisonous in its disdain for the inside of experts. I mean, if you're an expert on anything, you're immediately ridiculed as somebody who uh, doesn't have the right uh, to express a point of view. Whereas Scott Pruitt gets in, in, you know, <laughs> appointed to the head of the EPA. 
talking of you know China's tradition of of long-term planning, one of the key organizations when looking at China's long-term economic plans is the National Development and Reform Commission, the NDRC, Fagaiwei. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, Fagaiwei, uh, the NDRC? Uh, what are they and what do they do? What should our listeners understand about the power that it wields and the ways that it has shaped uh, Chinese economic strategy? Yeah, that's that, that's something that I would probably add a significant amount to in a revision to the book if, if I were to rewrite it today. The NDRC, um, uh, up until um, the leadership of uh, Xi Jinping, was really the paramount policy apparatus in China. They were, they were responsible for formulating uh, five-year plans, for approving monetary and fiscal policy initiatives, and down to the detailed project-by-project assessment of major investment projects. They, uh, all infrastructure had to go through the NDRC it was sort of a uh, a mini government uh, within the uh, the State Council uh, of China, and uh, it was a it was and still uh, is a, a group of um, sort of elite bureaucrats who really you know had a, a wide range of uh, of expertise and views on the whole array of uh, of, of economic issues that, that China faced. Xi Jinping has, I think, come to the conclusion that the NDRC, if anything, has become more a part of the problem than the solution uh, and has not been nimble enough in uh, recognizing the need to reform the system. And so he has really empowered um, a broad collection of um, party committees, the small groups within the party structure to become more powerful in, 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 in weighing in on these uh, economic decisions. And it sort of opened up a tension between the government through the NDRC uh, and the party through the leading small committees uh, in, in these key economic... You know, the, the jury's out on, on, on the implications of that. And it's um, potentially, to me, could be a worrisome development if it stymies the the progress that needs to be taken in this thorny area of reforming the state-owned enterprises. That still is unfinished business in China. And, um, you know, the party seems more interested in maintaining the, um, the primacy of, of state ownership than more of a market-based solution through the NDRC was seemingly uh, moving toward. And that's, that's uh, an important a point of tension that remains. Yeah, it's really since the end of Makai's tenure, it's you've seen a sort of what they call what was it, Guozhimintui. Yeah, the the state advances, the private sector retweets. So let's let's change tack a little bit here and talk about trade, which is I think a, a really one point that you make. I mean, actually, really at several points in the book, uh, you you know that American politicians, even you know uh, economists, certainly the American media, are getting some of these fundamentals about trade just wrong. They're, they're distorting in, in the way that they they size China's exports to the U.S. and, and giving an inaccurate picture of, of our actual balance of trade with China. Can you explain what the source of this inaccuracy is and, and what we are not accurately measuring? Well, you know, in the world of um, global value chains, uh, 
traditional trade statistics uh, have, have really been been uh, uh, rendered extremely in- inaccurate. And what do I mean by that? Well, I'm, I'm looking across the table, and you know, you guys have iPhones or you know laptops or, or or pads. And you know, if you take one of those machines apart, um, and and there are people who have actually done this, they'll find that there are components from you know multiple production platforms around the world, the intellectual uh, development and capital that that went into design the product may have been in, to pick a random place, Cupertino, California. Uh, But, you know, there there was a famous study done by some researchers at the, uh, one of the University of California uh, campuses that found like four to five percent of, you know, one of the most widely sold um, uh, iPhones was actually value added uh, in, in China, in China. Right. Uh, and the rest came from you know all over the world. In our trade statistics, when an iPhone is shipped from say Suzhou or you know wherever the the last assembly point is uh, in in southern China, that product gets tallied as uh, 100% of it being exported from China to the U.S. when in fact only, say, 5%, maybe 10% of the value added comes from China. That distorts our trade numbers. Right. That that idea doesn't seem hard for anyone to wrap their heads around, but why can't we... But our official data, Kaiser, don't capture that. Well, why can't we change to sort of trade and value added or or, or have some sort of a, a standard coefficient by which we knock off uh, value of well, there, there are yeah, actually, you come up with one, right? It's like actually, 44%. Yeah, right? There actually uh, is now a whole global effort that has been spearheaded by the World Trade Organization and the uh, staff of the OECD, which is called Trade and Value Added. And it, it does correct for these distortions of uh, value chains. And, you know, the U.S. Uh, China trade deficit gets reduced by um, a large number, but on any given year, anywhere from 30 to 40 percent from its measured number as officially re- reported. And yet, you know, when, um, you know, the politicians uh, go out on the campaign trail, um, they give the published number because it's a lot larger. And then they distort it. Uh, our current president used to talk about, you know, um, $500 billion Chinese deficits, even before, you know, without, without any correction, uh, for value added, the number was never bigger than 350. But, but you know, he was very creative in um, <laughs> uh, in, in rounding statistics. Uh, you talk in your book about the potential of American exports to China. And since the book was published, there's been a lot more about that in the news. Publicity sounds like Jack Ma saying he's going to use Alibaba to empower small to SMEs in America, American entrepreneurs, give them access to the Chinese market. What areas do you see as most promising in terms of U.S. exports uh, to China? What are the American goods and services that really could do well in China? Well, let's just back up and, and look at uh, the data, Jeremy. You know, first of all, in, in my sort of rebalancing prescription of the United States, I want us to move away from excess consumption growth toward more investment and export growth to fill the void. Uh, and if I look at exports as a potential for uh, economic renewal, and, and this is certainly resonates with the strategy of the, of the Trump administration, um, China is our third largest 
and by far our most rapidly growing major export market in, in the world. Our two largest uh, are in Mexico and Canada, but, you know, the Trump administration now wants to tear up uh, the NAFTA cord. And, and so, you know, the growth potential uh, in those areas uh, gets drawn into serious question. So we should look, you know, in, in, a, in a country like China, which is really focused on growing internal demand, who better to source uh, that internal demand uh, than American producers, and especially true of services. China needs services for economic growth. They have no expertise in a broad array of services, whether it's you know retail, hospitality and leisure, uh, healthcare, which is you know, enormously important to China, even some of the domestic transportation uh, areas. There are services there uh, are, are uh, uh, woefully uh, inadequate. These are great opportunities for us to participate in this potentially explosive growth, which really, I think, underscores what should be the most important uh, issue on the trade agenda for our two economies, uh, access uh, to, to Chinese markets. And um, I think we've been uh, misguided by politicians who say, no, the most important thing to do is beat, beat them up on the currency. The currency is not the point right now. The, the real point is having access to this potentially explosive growth in internal demand and making certain that American producers and services providers have access to this growth uh, in our third largest and most rapidly growing export market, China. Stephen, you say that trade sanctions on China could be Washington's biggest economic blunder since the Smoot-Hawley tariffs of the early 1930s. But your book was written in 2014, and at this point, even with Steve Bannon out and with Peter Navarro now more or less marginalized uh, in the White House, the likelihood of sanctions or other trade issues remains significantly higher than it was under the Obama administration. Tell us what would come of a trade war with China. Well, I think uh, if, if uh, there were to be uh, significant tariffs placed on all Chinese products that enter the United States, uh, number one, it would be the equivalent of uh, raising the prices of goods sold at Walmart. So it would be a tax on uh, middle-class uh, consumers. And number two, I think the Chinese would most assuredly uh, retaliate, uh, and so uh, their markets would become less accessible to our companies, and that would underpin uh, or undermine um, uh, U.S. export growth. Uh, and number three, there's every reason to believe that the Chinese would be less eager to buy our treasuries to help us fund our budget deficits, which seem likely to be getting larger rather than smaller under the Trump administration. So it would um, backfire. The The one pause for thought I have here is that, you know, I, I think it's important that we continue to press China on a number of issues of economic engagement, especially like uh, uh, market uh, access, so that we can participate uh, in the growth, the shift in the growth uh, of their economy. And I, But I think trade sanctions would, would, would really uh, throw a wrench into uh, a more constructive prying open of those markets. Stephen, uh, tell us about some of the things that you've seen. You were in China just in June, if I, if I remember correctly. What have you seen at street level that, that makes you kind of bullish about China's advance toward rebalancing? 
Well, you know, I, I hesitate to um, draw great conclusions based on sort of the anecdotes of my own personal experiences. But I do have to say, Kaiser, that, you know, when, when I was in China uh, a few months ago, uh, and I go there three, four, or five times a year, but somehow this time the, the place, the, the digitization uh, of uh, China seemed to be coming alive right in front of my eyes. Um, whether it was the, the bikes, the digitization of uh, retail, the seemingly the mobile payments vassal way that yeah. young people, especially millennials, use their smartphones for for payment. Right. There's no cash that uh, seems to really um, exchange hands anymore. And so I think that the digitization of of China and um, the growing role that uh, e-commerce and other Internet-related uh, activities play in shaping and reshaping the culture of the, their large generation of millennials. Forty-four percent of the Chinese population—pretty uh, staggering—was pretty obvious to me the last time I was there. So, so let's do a little scenario exercise following on that. So, each partner in this codependent relationship can either stay on its current unsustainable path, or it can rebalance. And I know it's not simply binary, but for simplicity's sake, let's just say that. It is binary that China rebalances or it doesn't. The U.S. rebalances to a more export-led and investment-led uh, growth model or it doesn't. So this gives us sort of a two-by-two two matrix with four scenarios. Um, either neither changes, which we know is, you know, the, the current disaster in waiting or possibly, or both change, which looks look pretty unlikely. Uh, that's, that's very sunny, of course. Uh, the likelihood that the U.S. is going to rebalance while China somehow stops its its progress toward rebalancing is very very slim, but there's that one scenario we had already sort of talked about the un the the, the sort of asymmetrical one, the yeah. asymmetrical one right, uh, which maybe is the most likely let, let's let's say uh, where you know China really does make significant progress toward rebalancing while I mean you you do give it pretty good marks while the U S sticks to its savings shortfall consumes well beyond its means fails to renew infrastructure fails to retool its industry to take advantage of China as an export market so what does that scenario look like Yeah, I just sort of again it goes back to my you know amateur um, sort of psychological uh, diagnosis of um, you know uh, two partners um, uh, sort of confronting the advanced stages of a, of a codependency. Codependency is a reactive disease or pathology. So when, you know, one partner changes, the other reacts strongly to it. So going back to your, your scenarios, to me, the most likely outcome is the asymmetrical scenario where China makes more progress on the road of rebalancing than the U.S. does. And it goes from, again, to use the lens of saving as the most important measure of rebalancing it goes from a, a regime of surplus saving to increasingly a regime of saving absorption, putting its saving to work in funding the safety net of its people rather than subsidizing the safety net of the American people by buying our treasuries and keeping our interest rates low. Uh, and what that means is that the U.S. is going to be lacking in a, uh, a source of open-ended purchases of treasury debt at a time when this current administration seems to uh, be um, uh, leaning toward increasing our debt uh, with large budget deficits 
over the next several years. And that, that is potentially a, uh, a worrisome conclusion for the United States as its codependent partner uh, seems to be um, uh, more focused on um, putting its saving to work at home rather than exporting it to the United States. Stephen, what is the China gripe? What is the current state of the China gripe? Well, the China gripe is, you know, I, I, I write this book and, you know, then you know, I, I go on TV shows or I talk to, you know, brilliant, knowledgeable people like yourselves or give speeches and everybody's got something negative to say about China. So I said, you know, I, I can't write a book like this without going through some of the, uh, the, the negative critical comments that are made frequently in the West uh, about China, whether it's debt intensive growth, uh, you know, housing bubbles, corruption, um, you know, unfair trading practices, currency manipulation. So I had a chapter that tried to look at a number of different dimensions of the China gripe to, to understand, uh, or at least to try to be even-handed in understanding the criticism that has been long directed at the West for lots of different reasons. And, you know, I, I did this because, I, uh, again, you know, I can smell the coffee of a, of a, of a critical group that, uh, uh, on the outside that would find this, uh, a book like this unbiased if it didn't really approach these issues. But there was a book that was written um, now about 20 years ago by a now-retired professor from Yale, Jonathan Spence, called The Chan's Great Continent. That's a great book. And that book really was a sort of an aha moment for me because it, it examined um, Western perceptions of China over um, you know, about an 800-year period, starting with Marco Polo and going through Nixon and Kissinger and many, many in between. And the conclusion that Professor Spence uh, reached was, was really a pretty staggering one, and that is that the West has had a strong predilection in looking at China through the same lens that the West sees itself. So, you know, we go through problems with debt and, you know, asset bubbles, and we conclude that, you know, China's going to go down the same road that we are. And that may be right, or it may not be right, but the biases are something, uh, the anti-China biases are deeply rooted in our history of so-called critical observations of the Chinese system. The book to read in tandem with that, I think, is also by Jonathan Spence. It's To Change China. I think it would uh, pair very well with the Chan's Great Continent. A quick question here. How do you see the Belt and Road Initiative fitting into China's overall economic strategy? Okay, maybe not a quick question, but I mean, do you, do you see it as a way for China to eventually create new export markets? And is there a danger that in doing so, it's really kind of seeking a way to renew its old habit of export-led growth and dependence on exports? Well, I hope not. Um, you know, I think that, you know, it's a very um, sort of ambitious campaign by Xi Jinping to um, project a larger role for China on the global stage than has been the case in the past. And, you know, a lot of this has been building for quite some time <coughs> with um, the objections of China and other developing uh, economies that they are continually been kept on the outside looking in in shaping 
the global institutions that govern the world economic order, whether they're, you know, the United Nations or the International Monetary Fund uh, or the World Bank. And um, there's been a number of objections raised a long time, for a long time, uh, by China and other leading uh, countries that the global governance needs to be more uh, reflective of the, the, the changes that have occurred in the economic the global system in the last 30 or 40 years. Uh, and China's gone so far as to uh, support new uh, lending institutions, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the New Development Bank, and now the Belt and Road Initiative as a way to uh, uh, indicate that uh, it, it feels that you know there's more than one way to skin a cat, that right. the Western way of um, pan-regional or global integration is not the only answer. And I don't think China, China's certainly not walking away from the Bretton Woods institutions, but it also believes that um, you know an, another approach can exist right. or coexist to side by side. Supplement them rather than to supplant the Bretton Woods institutions, right? Yeah, uh, but you know, you you raise an, another question that is: um, uh, Are these new export markets? Does, is this a way to rationalize uh, excess supply in uh, the old producer model and perpetuate uh, the the old producer model? And I, I hope that's not the case. That would be um, a setback for China if indeed that were the case. The best work that I've seen, though, suggests that the incremental growth uh, of um, demand for product, whether it's infrastructure or other types of capacity projects in these Belt and Road economies, is not nearly enough to uh, make a dent in the excess supply that exists in state-owned enterprises. And so the need to cut capacity remains very important, even in in the context of this Belt and Road uh, Initiative. Right. Last question, Stephen. You have a very interesting take on the impact of the internet in the United States and, in, of course, in China. And it's somewhat at odds with the usual assumptions about the nature of the censored internet in China. Can you talk about what you said in your book about this theme and, you know, whether or not and how it has played out, uh, as you suggested? Because, of course, since the book was published, the, the crackdown on the internet has actually ratcheted up. You know, the censorship is at, uh, you know, I think all-time high is meaningless, but it is stricter, as strict as it's ever been. Well, there are two models of internet control. Uh, there's tight control uh, in China, and contrary to what people think, I mean, it's largely self-censored. There is a government censor as well, but most of the content providers are, are pretty active in, in censoring material. Uh, and then there's the, um, you know, the, the no control model in the U.S., the bastion of democracy with the Internet being uh, the ultimate manifestation of that democracy. Anything goes from um, pornography to uh, political extremism to cyberbullying uh, or uh, interference with our election processes is coming out uh, as, as we speak. Which model is more sustainable for social aspirations in, in, in the long run. I think it's a fascinating uh, and, and increasingly important question for societies to address around the world. The benefits of the internet in China, I think, are, are not widely appreciated. China was historically a very fragmented uh, society. So the internet, despite the censorship and self-control, has been a powerful mechanism in integrating uh, the society and the economy and uh, creating a lot of national norms that 
pre-internet never existed. And, and you can certainly raise questions about censorship, information censorship, and internet uh, censorship is, is, is going too far in limiting uh, the public discourse, and, and I'm sympathetic to that. In the U.S., though, I think the Internet has become uh, an instrument of uh, uh, instability and social, economic, and political polarization that has reached a, a, a very dangerous point. And um, in the current political environment, those uh, risks are becoming more and more apparent. And I'm not just looking at, uh, you know, president who's who's got a, a tweet addiction problem, but I'm looking at, you know, cyberbullying and uh, the interference of um, uh, Russia in our election process, the Equifax hacking issues, uh, all of which are going at undermining different parts of our uh, society and um, uh, our socioeconomic structure. And, and that's, a, that's a worrisome trend. And I think our free market defense of the Internet as being the ultimate uh, instrument of democracy is something that we need to take a long and hard look at before it's too late. It's interesting uh, that you, you talk about the Internet as a tool of integration nationally. I, I've pointed this out many times before. Jeremy and I have talked about this on the show, how the Internet in China seems weirdly to be sort of more tightly woven, where uh, there's more of a national conversation, where a meme or an idea will sort of spread around nationally, whereas the U.S., maybe the maturity of the Internet in, in the U.S. is, is a cause for this, is... It making us more fractured and more tribal, as you say. I mean, it's it's interesting that you can you can find your own little. Well, yeah. I mean, I I, I remember when I was doing research for the book, and I was looking at some survey data on internet usage, and then sort of um, cable TV and the fragmentation of um, radio talk shows. And the survey data showed that um, uh, there was very little cross-fertilization of, of, of ideologies, that those on the left would only listen uh, to um, the, um, uh, uh, the messaging that, that, was, that resonated with their own uh, ideological conviction, right. the same on the right, and there was no crossover. No right. one was willing to really listen to the other side. And that's the polarization point that has become, I think, more acute in, in recent years. I mean, I don't know about your... Facebook feed, but it's it's hardly you know it, you know it's a sure. reflection of your own philosophy through your network of friends, and and it's it's hardly an open uh, architecture of of discourse on on any issue. We still find ways to fight. Well, Stephen, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. I, I suggest that for anyone interested in Stephen's ideas, they should check out his writings at Project syndicate.org. That's project-syndicate.org. And of course, should read his book, Unbalanced, even though he told you where the rubber meets the road and and, and told you what uh, his conclusions are. It's an excellent book. I highly recommend it. Uh, before we pack up our little peripatetic studio, let's offer our listeners some recommendations, shall we? Uh, but first, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca Podcast is powered by SupChina.com. Sign up for our free daily email newsletter. Download our app. Visit our website. Follow us on Twitter and on Facebook. On Twitter, we are SupChina News, and on Facebook, we're at facebook.com slash subchina news. If you enjoy the Seneca podcast, go and leave us a positive review on the Apple iTunes store or on Google Play. Thanks in advance for that. And now, bravely onward to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. I'd like to recommend a website called thebittersouthener.com, which is very nice for me as a new southerner. And a bitter it's one. It's kind of a literary website that features essays, sometimes fiction, 
writing about the South uh, from a broad-minded perspective. And it's the kind of thing that I wish some of my Yankee friends would uh, read sometimes before they make uh, disparaging remarks. Uh, <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Okay. All right, very good. Uh, Bitter Southerner. Uh, I mean, I think I've recommended before the... the Scalawag. Yeah, yeah. I guess it's another kind of thing. Southern New Yorker. Yeah, yeah. Kind of Southern New Yorker kind of thing. Stephen, what do you have for us? Well, uh, it would be a book. Um, It's a book that was published last year on globalization by um, the son of a famous economist, uh, Richard Baldwin. It's called The Great Convergence. It's called The Impact of Information Technology on a New Globalization. I have uh, read... I think almost every major book that's been written on globalization for the last 20 years, I've done a lot of writing myself on the topic. Uh, and this one really forced me to rethink a lot of the views I had because it, it focuses on the impact of these global supply chains, which we talked about earlier, in changing the way that nations compete. And, uh, and, and in Baldwin's view, we're, we're looking at competition the wrong way. Uh, we don't compete as nations anymore, but we compete as uh, fragments of, um, of of a very complex production chain. And uh, we're missing the mark by viewing uh, uh, us versus them. And trying uh, to draw national borders. Trying to draw national right. conclusions and for- formulate national policy. It's a very easy to read book, uh, and it's a very insightful book. Great. Um, I'm going to recommend an app called Autumn, A-U-D-M. Uh, what it is, is it finds sort of premium, uh, generally sort of longer magazine articles, often from magazines like The Atlantic or New York Magazine or uh, The New Republic, long reads as they would call them. And uh, it, it's an audio app. They have excellent narrators, really skilled n- narrators who, who uh, read these pieces and you know, there's there's all the, the you know generally the cover stories from the Atlantic are, are going to be in there. For those of you who just don't have time, and you know on your commute while riding the train or or whatever, uh, don't want to listen to a full audio book or always getting lost. It's just sort of the right bite sized forty five minute an hour long maybe reads of of, of excellent magazine stories done really quite masterfully. A U D M Autumn, uh, check it out. Uh, I've, I'm quite quite addicted to it now. Uh, thanks so much again, Stephen. That it was great to have you on. Thank you. And, uh, we we really enjoy it and look forward to following your work and speaking to you again before too long. Uh, Jeremy, man, it's been really good hanging out with you in New York these last couple of days. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the Cynical Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Guo and Jeremy Goldcorn. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash SubChina News and follow us on Twitter at, at SubChina News. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Take care.